All right, this podcast episode is going to be called <laughs> Almost Everything I Know About Working with Recruiters. All right. So I think in the past, definitely, definitely one of the biggest mistakes I've made is not paying the best recruiter I can as much as we can afford for the state of the company to make key hires, right? To help us with, with key hires. It's been my, you know, it's kind of the, the, the mythology of the startup space that you can hire everyone on your own and that you should not hire recruiters. So there's a couple instances where this is actually a bad idea and where folks are making a mistake by not hiring recruiters. The first is when they just don't have a lot of time to do the quality of search that they need to do and the thoroughness of the search that they need to do. You know, when you have a startup, you have a lot of things on your plate and a good recruiting process can take just a ton of time over the course of sometimes six months or even longer for a very niche hire or for a very kind of critical hire that needs a multifaceted skill set. So like I said, in the past, I've just kind of put out the job offer, hit up people in my network, tweeted something and left things to chance. And I think that resulted in a couple of things. One, when you do that, it can sometimes take a lot longer to make the hire than it should take. And there's the opportunity cost associated with everything that a hire would have done, an employee would have done during, you know, the extra three or six months when, you know, when you would have had them on board, if you had gone with a recruiter. I think the second mistake is that when you don't go with a world-class recruiter, at least a recruiter who's capable of hiring a world-class person into your position, you can sometimes just not be dealing with the best possible candidate or candidate pool when you go to hire. And I've definitely done that in the past. I think the biggest learning, probably the biggest learning, certainly tied for top three of, you know, in, in I don't know, my, my, my life in startups. The biggest lesson is, has, has been learning what real excellence looks like in a given position. When you first get started, if, if someone just knows more than you do about a given area, that's awesome, right? And because they know more than you, you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt on everything. But until you've worked with someone who's world-class in a given role and in a given position, you just don't know what that looks like and you don't know what you're missing out on by not having that, truly. And especially for roles where people don't have huge personal brands, right? Accounting, engineering, and on and on and on. It's, it's not obvious who the world-class people are, right? It might be obvious who a world-class CEO is or maybe a world-class communications person but when it comes to pretty obscure roles or highly technical roles where people in those positions generally don't want public profiles, it's, it's just super hard to know what world-class looks like. 
And when you don't know what world-class looks like, you end up getting really attached to external signals, right? Like, is this person ex-Google, ex-Facebook, yada, yada, yada. And that can be a really misleading path to go down because often people with these huge brands associated with their name or on their LinkedIn profile, often these people weren't responsible for the success that they had. Maybe they were on a team of 20 that was, you know, delivering a given outcome, but they weren't the person in charge of it. They weren't the person who owned it. They weren't the person who drive, you know, drove the results, but you know, they can get their name attached to different kinds of, of success, right? So it's just, it's, it's, I think things get really skewed when you go to build a company or an org chart and you just don't know what, what excellence looks like. So that is, that's one of the reasons why you should work with a a great recruiter. Um, Not only can they get you a better pool of candidates during a, a shorter amount of time, but they can educate you on what success looks like. One of the things that I like to tell recruiters when I work with them is that I do not want to be sold on a given candidate. Do not sell me on a, on a candidate, right? I, I don't want you to be doing a, a two-way sales process where you're selling a candidate on us and you're selling me on a candidate, right? Um, in fact, what I prefer is that they actually tell me the reasons why someone might not work in our org. And it's important to have incentives aligned around that. So let's talk about incentives for a moment. There are three types of searches you can do, at least three popular types. There's probably more, but I'm not experienced to know what the additional ones are. The first type of search you can engage a a recruiter on is a retained search. That's a search where generally, you know, you pay them up front, you you figure out approximately what the market salary might be for a position. They usually charge a percentage of that and you figure out what that, that fee would be. And then you pay a third up front, a third maybe like after 60 days, and a third when the person is hired. And when the person is hired, that's when you adjust that last payment so that you, you know, you ensure that that you are paying whatever percentage of the first year salary the person that you hired. So the benefits of a retained search is that if you have a really great recruiter, well, often they won't even do anything except for a retained search. But if they are a really great recruiter and they have lots of great candidates coming across their desk, they're generally going to fill their retained searches first, right? Because it's a client who's committed to working with them. It's someone who's paid up front and it's it's secure business, right? It's, it's business that they know they're going to get because that person, again, has made a financial commitment up front. The second type of search that someone might do is... Uh, or th- a second configuration for these searches and these deals are contingency searches. These are searches where payment is contingent upon a hire being made. So if you engage a firm and they bring you someone, then when you go to hire that person, you're contractually obligated to pay the recruiter a a certain fee. And then there's, there's two types of contingency searches right? So for the second type, there's a exclusive and a non-exclusive retained search. So a exclusive retained search is where you're guaranteeing that no one else, no other recruiting firm is out there recruiting for this role and for this position. So what that does is 
you know, gives them the assurance that they're not going to be recruiting a candidate. And then someone else who represents you is also recruiting that same candidate. That's problematic. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And um, the second thing this this guarantees is just that you know you're 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 putting all your eggs in one basket and spending all your time with them versus starting up a contingency search with a firm and then having your interest drift towards other firms as time goes on. So I really think that people in general in most situations should retain should should aim for doing a retained search that just means you found a really great fit in terms of a, uh, in terms of a recruiter you generally should go with a contingency search whether exclusive or not when you're not feeling so sure uh, about about the recruiter but uh again it's not ideal and i, I can't i can't recall having a, a great experience with a contingency search. So uh, I'm not a fan. All right, let's talk about vetting recruiters for experience and fit. The main thing here to think about, well, there's there's actually a lot of things here. Um, the first is, is this a pretty niche role that you're hiring for, right? Like if you're if you're hiring for a pretty common role something where there's a, a huge pool of candidates, I don't think it's important or it can't be super important. It doesn't have to be super important that the recruiter specializes in only making that kind of hire. But there are recruiters who specialize in CEO searches just for startups or CEO searches for growth stage businesses or, you know, in, in our case for the role we have open, we're hiring a recruiter who just searches for um, data engineers, right? Data scientists and data engineers, people who do technical stuff with large data sets. And that can be really helpful when, when they only focus on, on those kinds of roles. Again, there's people that only do marketing hires, people who only hire for support folks. And if you can get really comfortable with someone who specializes in only doing that kind of hire, it, it can be a really great thing. I think in general... If you have to hire someone or work with a recruiter who specializes in a given vertical, right, uh, versus specializing in hiring a specific kind of person, I'd always go with a recruiter who specializes in hiring for a specific specific skill set, regardless of what kind of business they're placing that person into. I think the next thing to consider when you're talking to a recruiter who you might engage with is whether or not you've learned something about the role when talking with them. So uh, bringing this to a, a very recent experience, we're engaging a recruiter and they taught me a lot about a lot of things that my CTO knows, but a lot of things that I didn't know about the role we were hiring for. So we're hiring for a, a data engineer that was the original title. And it looks like we might change that title to something like data streaming architect. And for a variety of reasons, I think that is a better title. And so does, so does Nick, my CTO. So I, I not only learned a bunch of reasons why that title should change if we want to attract our, our ideal candidate, but she also, you know, this recruiter that we're engaging uh, taught me about the, the differences between 
uh, data engineers and and data scientists, and and she said it's it's actually a little bit harder to hire for data engineers these days because so many up and coming data engineers often decide that they want to become uh, data scientists that they don't just want to build the infrastructure for the data they want to work on the analysis side and they want to create you know machine learning algorithms around it and they want to you know they they want to consider the data rather than building the the home for the data and and the data streaming and the, all the various parts of the data architecture um, another thing to consider when you're dealing with a recruiter is whether or not they're a classy salesperson you know at the, at the end of the day they're 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 very kind of higher level salesperson and you know which means you usually don't feel like you're being sold to but they're making their case they're making it in a measured way they're persuading you but they don't sound like a used car salesman right they're they're not they're not using cheap conversion tactics or takeaways or you know they're, they're generally not doing anything that feels uh quote unquote icky as they try and persuade you to work with them usually it's you know they're they're laying out things in a very logical way another thing to consider another uh just kind of checkbox for recruiters if they have offices in multiple locations that's not always required especially if they have a lot of specialized niche experience hiring someone into a given role but it does help if they have offices in multiple locations because that means that they can tap into the networks of the people they know and the databases they they have for for folks who live in those various locations and then also just general process are they fast at following up are they fast at getting the contract together it might be that they're kind of slow when it comes to these things because they know you're not a good fit for them <laughs> um but you know in general the kind of experience you have with a recruiter is very similar to the kind of experience that someone they're recruiting will have with you in terms of follow-up times, professionalism, et cetera. In terms of process, I got to go in three minutes. In terms of process, I would recommend talking to at least three firms to do your due diligence, to get a range of pricing options and contract options, commercial contract options. And simply by talking to three firms, you can learn what kind of options exist. And then you can go back to the whoever you want to work with and, and ask and ask for the best kind of assemblage or configuration of the contracts or deals that were offered to you from um, from the two places you decided not to go with. Um, in terms of pricing, it's generally anywhere from, you know, 20% to 35%. I think you can, you know, I found that you can get a discount if you're doing an exclusive search, right? If, if you promise a firm that you're only going to work with them. Um sometimes you can get a discount for doing a retained search. If you're a growing startup and a firm has a sense that you're going to be placing lots of hires over time, you can often get a discount, especially if you're not a current customer, so they can create that relationship with you and then grow it over time. Sometimes you can get a great discount if you are working with a really established firm, but it's a new person who maybe moved to a new location and they're building up their book of business at this new firm. So they have lots of contacts, but those contacts belong to their previous employer, their previous um, search firm. And they're obligated to not like cherry pick from their old client base. It's also an option when it comes to pricing to make payments over time, to make installments over time. One issue around paying less that can come up is that if you do pay less often and 
a client has a multiple or a recruiter has multiple clients who are searching for a similar role. Often the recruiter, they're not supposed to do this, but they'll, they'll pass the best people to the folks who are paying them the most because when they close those positions, that's when they get paid. So they're going to get paid more if they give a great candidate to someone else versus giving it to you. You know, that's an ethical issue, but it, you know, it does happen. It's something to consider. So I'd say even though you sometimes can pay a lot, lot less, I'd be a little careful when you do that, <laughs> when you're negotiating down. In terms of commercial contract items for a recruiter, I think uh, a couple things to consider is one is a, a 90 day placement guarantee, which means that if someone for whatever reason doesn't work out within 90 days, that they'll restart the search for you. So if someone's hired, you know, through that recruiter, it doesn't work out within 90 days, they, they have to fill that position. And another thing is, is a, like a two year non-solicit, which means that that recruiter can't solicit anyone from your company within two years of, of the contract. And this is easier to get done. If you're not a large company, if you're like Google and you have thousands of employees, this can be really problematic, in, incredibly problematic. But um, often you can get like maybe a, a one year non-solicit in those cases. Anyway, this is most of what I know about working with recruiters. I'm not super experienced, but in the past, HR team handled this for me at Nomics. I got to do this myself. And here's what I know. And this is all very fresh in my mind because we just closed this kind of arrangement with a recruiter. And I'm very happy who we ended up with or, you know, with the recruiter we ended up with and hopefully it'll, it'll all turn out well. All right. Take care. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. If you liked this content, please help me out by leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It provides me with encouragement and it helps other people find the program. Also, if you have a question that you'd like me to answer on the podcast, go to asknomics.com, leave me a question and I'll do my best to answer it in the next few days. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.